Um, welcome, alumni of Oxford, from an alumnus of Cambridge who has lived, worked, and been otherwise accommodated by the University of Oxford since 1955 and is quite well pleased with the arrangement, especially on boat race dated at this year. Uh, my subject for you is an Oxford one, but typically elusive since the great collection which I shall talk about is now dispersed. And though many of you probably visited Blenheim Palace <coughs> where it was housed, you never saw it. It was the greatest of the private collections of engraved gems and cameos from ancient to contemporary neoclassical in 18th century Britain. But it was dispersed at auction in 1899 and that all that you'll see at Blenheim is Reynolds' portrait of the fourth duke. That's not him. There he is. Showing him clutching one of the cameos, which is now in Cologne, with his son holding one of the nine red boxes in which the collection was housed. The duke had a big family, and he used to escape from them to his gems, which he kept in his bedroom. So, what is there to talk about? In fact, there's a great deal, ranging from Renaissance princes of Mantua, a 17th century English court intrigue, <coughs> botched cosmetic surgery, even Barnum and Bailey's circus. And we do, in fact, know what the collection looked like, apart from a few drawings and 19th century photos, since the Beasley Archive here, the Classical Art Research Centre, which is housed in the Classics Centre behind the Ashmolean, has a complete set of electrotype copies and sealing wax impressions, which have been made by the cataloguer, Presser Story Masculine, in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, this is what they look like. The uh, electrotype, the dark one, and the sealing wax, as you recognise, is also one uh, paler um, uh, golden electrotype. And here's a sample of what the originals look like. Out of order this time because it came here. A sardonyx cameo showing the bust of the Roman Emperor Claudius just three inches high, quite a big one in fact, and sold in New York four years ago for $321,000. And there are others of the collection I'll be describing which would certainly go into seven figures if they ever came on the market. The Duke was a great man. It was he who employed Capability Brown and Sir William Chambers, making Blenheim visually what it is today. He was a man of affairs, but also a scholar, and soon wearying of, of affairs of state, he devoted his last years to his gems and to his astronomical telescope. His heirs were also busy men, spent much of their heritage in conducting affairs of state, to the point at which they began to dispose of their heritage, first pictures, books and furniture, and eventually, with the sixth duke, the gems. It was sold first as a whole in 1875 to a colliery magnet called David Bromelow, and then by Bromelow's daughter as separate pieces in 1899 at Christie's in London. It was regarded as the sale of the century, and it's some satisfaction to see that she got slightly less for the collection than her father had paid for it. The collection was of about 800 pieces, and we know the present whereabouts of barely 250 of them. So it is possible now to catalogue and study only in illustrations the whole collection, and this is what we've done with help, resulting in an expensive volume from the Oxford Press last year. I've left a copy in the front here in case you're interested to look at it afterwards. And I must mention my colleagues in the work, Claudia Wagner at the Archive, who also takes photos, Diana Scarsbrick in London, who is a world expert in jewellery, and Erica Zwierlein Deal in Bonn, who is a world expert on ancient gems. So this has been our task over the last years, and I should add that the best of the gems, especially from the Renaissance, were set in real jewelled mounts and rings with elaborate modelled figures in miniature, a lot of colour from enamel, this is a good example, and it looks just as good from the front where you see the intaglio. 
And here's another with a beautifully painted back to a Renaissance study of a baby come Eros with a cornucopia, horn of plenty. Apart from the intrinsic beauty of the stones, onyxes, turquoises and sapphires among them, this was by no means a colourless collection. The history of the collecting is an exciting one. <clears throat> it involves Italian Renaissance princes of Mantua, who included some of the most colourful and resourceful figures of the 15th and 16th century Europe, such as Isabella d'Este and the Gonzaga princes. They eventually disposed of parts of their family collections before their city was sacked in 1630. It involves European dealers and English royalty, not least Prince Henry, who might have been our Henry IX had he lived, and a shrewd and wealthy collector, Lord Arundel, here in a portrait now in Oxford made by his friend Rubens. Lord Arundel started collecting in the early 17th century, time of James I, Charles I, then Cromwell. He collected largely thanks to the wealth of his wife, Alethea, and mainly in the eastern Mediterranean, Turkey and Greece, and then Italy, and mainly books and statues. There's a good display of the so-called Arundel marbles in Oxford. Arundel's first gems were, one of them, a gift from his friend Prince Henry which had come from an old Dutch collection and is now displayed in a case in the ballroom of Beaver Castle where I stole this photograph since the Duke would not let me get any closer. It has busts of the Emperor Augustus and Livia in silver relief on one side, which you can see here, in Taglio on the other and set in a gilt iron swivel ring. Here's drawings of it which were made when it was in the Dutch collection, which was bought for Prince Henry. <coughs> Arundel also had a gem from his friend, the Dutch artist Rubens, which was perhaps the most famous in the collection, now in Boston and showing a scene involving Cupid and Psyche in what is probably an initiation ceremony of some complexity, which I'll come back to later. The Mantuans had been selling off their pictures oil paintings by Titian, Giulio Romano, Raphael, Mantegna, and other leading Renaissance artists, a great many of them bought by Charles I of England. He was also offered the gem collection of about 250 pieces, but he thought it was too expensive, so Arundel snapped it up. It was lucky that he did, for otherwise they might have gone the way of Charles I's pictures to sale. Arundel could add them to his pieces from Prince Henry and the cameo from Rubens and a cameo owned by Arundel's own saintly mother, Anne Dacre. We've been able to recognise this one from a portrait of her, which is the main picture here, which was recently on the market in London. Although we don't know where the original cameo is, we do know what it looked like from a 19th century photograph, which you see at the right, and you see it hanging around her neck. Uh, we've also got an electrotype of it. It shows the Assumption of the Virgin Mary with angel heads around her and, of course, of Renaissance date. The chase for these gems can be more than simple library work and museum hunting, and it's led me and my colleagues from Malibu to Monaco and, on paper at least, from Bari to Japan. In the States, the main owners are Boston, about 100 in Baltimore, which is the most anywhere, and there are several in our BM and V&A and in private hands and in Europe. And there are, of course, many more yet to be located. The Gonzagas fancied themselves as heirs to the Roman Empire and encouraged the making of pictures and gems which celebrated the famous deeds of ancient Romans. And so, in a way, did we in Britain when I was a schoolboy and we all read Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome how Horatius held the bridge in the brave days of old. And the Renaissance liked these stories too, and Horatius himself appears on some of their gems. Here's an electrotype copy of one that Arundel got. <coughs> Horatius stands in the middle of the bridge fighting off the Latins, and behind him to the right, his fellow Romans are destroying the bridge that he stands on. 
Mars is standing up there in the cloud on top. The river Tiber waits for him to jump in, to escape eventually, when even the ranks of Tuscany could scarce forbear to cheer. But there were many serious views of the classical gods and occasions to be found, often in original. Here is the goddess Demeter receiving a gift of corn from the hero Triptolemus. This first century BC cameo once had belonged to the Medici family, one of whom must have given it to a Gonzaga in Mantua for it to turn up in the Arundel collection. We know there was some intermarriage. It's now in a private collection in London. Uh, no less to their liking and echoing their way of life were scenes of drinking with Bacchus and Satyrs or Cupid and Venus, several surviving from antiquity for them to collect and often to copy. <coughs> Here's a, a little cameo with Cupids at worship, not exceptionally well cut, but remember how small it is, it's on a finger ring. And this is a much finer one with Cupids building a trophy. From the Bacchic side, there are studies of the Bacchants, the wild women serving the god, often with their hair flowing and dancing in ecstasy, or uh, more sober, like this one, with ivy in her hair. Some of these are, or copy, good Hellenistic Greek originals of the late centuries BC. Another favourite subject of the early Roman Empire was the life of the sea gods, Here's one where Renaissance owners thought they might see Antony and Cleopatra at one of their seaside revels, but in fact it is the Greek god Triton with a sea nymph riding on a seahorse, a complicated group which was very much favoured for sculpture and for jewellery. And this is just for a small fingering. You can probably see the design rather better in the uh, impression. One big problem is that Italian Renaissance artists were as good at gem engraving as any ancient Greek or Roman with the same materials and the same techniques. They were expert at copying, but also at creating original and very often plausible classical compositions. And we're sometimes at a loss to know whether what we're looking at belongs to the 1st or 16th century AD, which is a rather sad confession for any art historian. Divine and heroic subjects were simply asking for a new treatment, even when they had not been treated in the same way by antiquity. <clears throat> Here's the impression of a Renaissance gem showing the forge of the god Vulcan with his men working on armour, the sort of subject you see also in Renaissance silver and in paintings. Renaissance artists were good at composing classical scenes and groups in the antique manner, but of subjects which have no ancient authority. Various groups of gods and goddesses were popular. Here's a miscellaneous group of them with a, uh, with a, a globe at the bottom. And there are often seen to be light adaptations of groups composed by artists in other media, usually painting. So there may be a Raphael background to this one. And there are big battle scenes with the Roman army prominent with its SPQR banners, another great favourite for compositions, with rather more figures on them than any ancient engraver would have tolerated or attempted. Uh, this is the electrotype, where you can see most of the figures fairly well, but we identified the original recently in a private collection in Paris. More remarkable is this shell cameo, showing the death of the hero Meliega, swarming with 27 tiny figures, and the cameo itself less than one and a half inches long. This is a rather special jewellery type, more favoured in the north of Italy and Renaissance Germany. Uh, Mantua was in the north, and it was for very long under the rule of the Habsburgs beyond the mountains. Portraits of famous Romans were popular, therefore ancient ones were collected, they were also copied from coins or medals. They bolstered the esteem of Renaissance princes who saw themselves as successors to the glories of the Roman Empire. The Emperor Claudius, shown as the god Jupiter, is a good ancient example that antiquity favoured, standing with his aegis holding a thunderbolt, eagle beside him. 
Renaissance princes, too, could think themselves assimilated to ancient gods, heroes, and emperors. I show you this in electrotype, which often shows more of the detail than the semi-translucent stone does. The original is now in Chicago, where it's been given a new mount. <coughs> Some are prominent civilians, like the orator Cicero, which I show you here in a plaster impression. Uh, you can see it rather easier there than you can in the original stone. Uh, still not all that easy to see, even with the light coming from behind it, which is not the way it would have been ever displayed in antiquity. Uh, most are of the imperial family, whose emperors tend to look rather alike and were copied often for propaganda purposes in antiquity and then in the Renaissance. And who could fail to be inspired by the noble, original Roman features of this consul? Best are the imperial empresses and princesses of the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. Here's Agrippina, their elaborate hairdos. And you can imagine how difficult it is to photograph a transparent stone like this. Identities are quite important too. This, an electrotype, certainly derives from ancient pairing of the heads of Dionysus and a satyr, you can see he's got an animal ear, a well-known ancient motif, but in the Renaissance it was identified as Socrates and Plato. A beautiful pair of ancient engraved plaques include one showing the young emperor Augustus as the god Hermes, and the other one, his sister Octavia, as the goddess Diana. The Duke got both these pieces, one from the Arundel Collection and the other one by purchase. And they've met each other again in the British Museum. Uh, they may look like a pair, but in fact they're not. And here is a no less accomplished cameo of a youth and a girl, maybe Venus and Adonis, but who knows what identity was in the mind of the late Renaissance engraver, whose skills could quite readily match those of classical antiquity. In some ways, again, this, you can see it rather better in the electrotype than in the original. It's in the V&A. But if you want Renaissance invention and vigor, here's an impression of a gem in Baltimore. At the right, Bacchus is arriving in his chariot, to pick up Ariadne, who stands in the middle on the seashore, watching the boat of Theseus, who has dumped her, sail away home. All right, Titian did it better on a large canvas in London, but this is hardly more than an inch wide. So far I've shown you mainly those gems that came from the Renaissance collection, <coughs> ancient or not, and here's just one more of the most famous pieces, with a pedigree that goes back to the early 15th century, but was almost certainly made in Rome in the first century AD. It's the so-called Felix gem, now in the Ashmolean. Felix because it's signed by the artist Felix, who is also named in an inscription found in Rome. Stones are rather strange, dark agate, very thin, very finely engraved, just one and a half inches wide. It's an unusually complicated piece of narrative. The walls at the top are the walls of Troy, and outside them is a statue of Poseidon on a column. Uh, this was a feature which was noticed by the painter Mantegna in Mantua and used by him in one of his Roman paintings. Uh, below, to the right, Diomedes is escaping from Troy holding the Palladion statue of Athena, which he has stolen, and he's greeted by Odysseus, who has killed one of the Trojan guards or priests whose feet you can see at the bottom. This is the most detailed treatment of the subject to have survived. and Many other ancient examples just have single figures. The original was perhaps made up of two medallions, maybe as early as 4th century BC in date, which Felix put together into a single composition like this in the 1st century AD. Here's another Arundel gem just of the Diomedes with the Palladion, but this is certainly a Renaissance copy. Arundel had a very mixed career. He changed his religion twice, from Catholic to Protestant and back again. He spent a while imprisoned in the Tower of London. Under Cromwell, he retired to exile in Italy at Padua, 
taking his gems with him. There he died in 1646. His body returned to England, but his heart and entrails left behind in the cathedral at Padua, marked by a plaque referring to his innards, his interiora, which were buried there. Andrew's collection went back to England in its fine painted Flemish cabinet, which we have yet to find again, although it did survive at Blenheim into the 19th century. He had paid 10,000 scudi for it, that's a little over 3,000 pounds. They passed through various hands, including once being pawned in Northampton in 1670 for 1,500 pounds, and they eventually came into the possession of Betty Germain at Knoll, wife of a mysterious Dutchman. She cared for them, had them catalogued again, and tried to sell them to the BM for £100,000, which they thought was too much. She then gave them to a young woman friend of hers, who was to be our Duke's sister-in-law, and she gave them to him. Our Duke was the grandson of the first Duke, John Churchill, Victor of Blenheim. He had started his collecting early, on tour in Italy, In Venice, the collector and dealer Zanetti had a prime collection, and after a lot of bargaining, he gave up to our duke his prized piece, a portrait of the Emperor Hadrian's favourite Antinous, generally regarded as one of the finest portrait gems from antiquity. It had been broken and restored in a gold mount, as you see. It has a break. On the break, there's a rather unhelpful inscription. It's in a strange black stone, And it was so popular and admired that it was copied several times by artists in Italy and then in England once it got to Blenheim Palace. We had the pleasure of handling this in a private collection. There's an Italian copy of it in the Royal Collection at Windsor, in the recent publication of which our archive has also played some part. Another of the Zanetti gems got by the Duke was a portrait of Sabina, (coughs) the wife of the Emperor Hadrian. (coughs) Back home, our Duke was able to buy the collection of Lord Bessborough. Uh, His wife, a Devonshire, which is a big gem-collecting family, probably inspired his buying, and on her death he was quite quick to sell the collection to Marlborough. The collection includes gems from the Medina collection, which was once in Livorno in Italy, but then sold in London, presumably to get closer to the market. And the gems collected in Italy by Lord Chesterfield's young brother, Philip Stanhope. Uh, This was the age of the Grand Tour, when noblemen and others uh, travelled Italy and brought back relics of the classical world for their country houses, uh, usually statues, but also coins and gems. And if they couldn't afford them, at least collections of glass or plaster casts of gems in which there was a roaring trade. Lord Chesterfield himself was rather against too much collecting, trivia, and he warned his own son in Rome, no piping or fiddling, I beseech you, no days lost in poring over imperceptible intaglios and cameos. A leading collector and dealer in Rome at the time was Baron Stosch, There he is at the left with his cronies. He was a very busy and unscrupulous man, and in his spare time, a paid spy for England in Italy. (coughs) Apart from these Zanetti gems, the Duke acquired from Bessborough and many others pieces which could even match the Arundel collection to which they were added. I'll show you a selection, (coughs) repeating many of the motives we saw in the Arundel gems, but with a wider range both of antiquity and from the later production of the 17th and 18th century. The Duke's collection had nearly doubled by the time of his death in 1817. It reflected much the same taste as that of the Renaissance princes, but with a more scholarly element, encouraged in this case by the Duke's tutor, Jacob Bryant. He was modern enough to write a book holding that the Trojan War never happened. Uh, They went for imperial subjects, such as were naturally sought out in all periods. (coughs) Here's an unusual one, an unusual material, turquoise, 
showing the Empress Livia holding a bust portrait of Augustus. It's in Boston now. It's not complete, and we can now only guess what it looked like when it had been set in its Renaissance mount of gold and enamel, of which we have only the cast and a 19th century photograph, which is this. And from a drawing in St. Petersburg, which shows that the mount was even more elaborate in the 18th century. Here's a fine portrait of Tiberius's stepfather, Augustus, in a splendid 18th century mount. Uh, we rediscovered this two years ago in a private collection. <coughs> this is a good example of a real problem piece. A big cameo, <coughs> now in the BM, probably showing a pair of deities rather than imperial portraits, although there have been various identifications proposed, and not least those inscribed in the little wreaths in the top corners <coughs> of the modern mount. In the mid-19th century, this mount, which was certainly added in the early 17th century, was described as gilt silver. What there is now in the BM is a copy in brass, from which the inscriptions in the wreaths have been erased. <coughs> it looks as though between the sales of the gems, our Mr. Bromelow decided that a copy would do, and he also removed a good restoration of the man's shoulder. Luckily, though, he did a good job of copying the back, too, which carried a new inscription of the early 18th century, saying that the piece was by then in the possession of the Duke de Fuentes, a Portuguese nobleman and diplomat who was living mainly in Rome. <coughs> the heroic subjects are always popular, none more so than those involving Hercules, and not always at his best. Uh, here he is drunk, at least sipping from his large cup, and here in a gem which had been brought back to Blenheim as a memento of the great collection, he's peeing. We're used to seeing him wrestling with a lion, but how often have you seen the lion's cave at the bottom here with his lioness wife and a cub inside it? More conventionally, a fine bust portrait of Hercules, a cameo which was once in the possession of Pope Clement VII, and on its back, a bust of his lover, that is, Hercules is not the Pope's, Omphale, dressed in his lion skin, although it's just possibly young Heracles himself. One can never be quite sure. Of a more decorative nature are the many Gorgon Medusa heads, the horrifically beautiful face ringed with snakes, <coughs> here on an elaborate finger ring in the V&A, but she appears more often in big cameos. Here's a really large one, which could have been set on an emperor's breastplate. It's now in Liverpool. Its back has Christian crosses and a motto on it, so it has survived for quite a long time above ground. Another highly decorative subject was the Bacchant, or Minad, in her wild dance for Dionysus. There are lots of studies of her head and shoulders, mainly ancient cameos, and here's one of the best. Back in the 18th century, it had a mount like this. And here's the goddess Diana, uh, not an ancient gem this time. I show it because it's an example of a stone with another device on the back, which is not uncommon, was rather favoured by the Renaissance for pendants. On the back of this, there's a rather decadent-looking Venus and Cupid. <coughs> Not all of the heroic subjects make immediate sense. Here, what might be Apollo is looking down at a seated woman beside a shield. And above, there's a crow. A crow might indicate the woman whose name would then be Coronis, meaning crow. But what's she doing with a shield? There are versions, too, which have her wounded. You see it better in the electrotype. And this is another one which you have yet to find before we can ever fully understand it. We looked at some historical subjects, and the Felix gem, with its scene at Troy, 
Uh, here's another Trojan scene where Apollo is stopping Achilles from pursuing Hector inside the walls of Troy, as described by Homer in the Iliad. Uh, this used to belong to Arthur Evans, the excavator of Knossos and the virtual refounder of the Ashmolean Museum, and then to Captain Spencer Churchill at Northwick Park, so it almost got back into the family. Reflections of history through myth or symbol <coughs> was not unknown in antiquity. Here's a fine cameo of an elephant trampling on a fish. There were Roman coins with an elephant, which was a symbol for Caesar, uh, facing a serpent-shaped war trumpet of the Celts. And we can speculate upon the circumstances in which a combination with a fish might have been thought significant in the first century BC. This got to the Ionides collection. Ancient statues are very much prized by aristocracy on the Grand Tour, who brought back many for their country houses, and to help, engravers made gem copies of many of them. A favourite site at Rome was, of course, the La Ocoon group, and here is a, a Marlborough cameo copy of the head of the old father. But a far more original artist of the 16th century, not long after the original had been found in Rome, made a special version in shell, copying the outlines of the old group, but turning the children attacked by the snakes into babies and adding another baby below who looks almost as though he's being trodden on. <coughs> This cameo is in New York. It shows at the centre a nymph reclining, suckling a baby panther who is being held by the tail by a satyr. Odd behaviour, but not without parallel. Recently in Rangoon Zoo, a woman suckled two baby tigers who had lost their mother. It echoes the stories of human babies being suckled by wild animals. This version is rather over-elaborate, with a flower garden in the middle, a satyr holding the panther's tail, a lot of paraphernalia, silly flowing dress off the head of the woman sitting at the right. It must be a Renaissance version of an ancient composition, known to the artist perhaps in some other cameo, like this fragment of an original one, now in a German collection, uh, where we see the same basic figures, but then instead of the, the, the silly flowing headdress, one can see that originally there was a, a tree above the woman seated. This is a, a finer fragment of the same scene reversed in the, in the German collection. The Duke was a patron of various 18th century gem engravers in Britain. He encouraged them to copy the stones he had, as well as other classical subjects. There was a fine Eros statue in Rome, which was very much copied, and here is the Rome Eros Centocello head as copied for the Duke by the engraver Nathaniel Marchant, who signs it at the left. And another of his protégés, Edward Birch, made for him a copy of the famous Antinous portrait that we've already looked at. So the Duke's collection of old gems was proving an inspiration for engravers of the 18th century and their present-day engravers with the same motivation. Animals are a good subject, domestic, wild, and mythical. Here's one of the finest ancient ones, the head of the god Dogstar Sirius, set in a finger ring. The rays around its head show that it is a star, and on its collar we read the name of its engraver. But the head is so deep cut into the stone that it's virtually in the round, a tour de force. You get some idea of its energy when it's brightly lit from behind, as it probably never was in antiquity. The animals are especially popular subjects for ancient and later cameos. Here's a very fine lion. Here, more unusually, and for a finger ring engraving, a spider and its web. A beautiful leopard cut in an appropriately mottled stone had been owned by Zanetti, and our Duke wanted it, but the Italian sold it to the Duke's cousin, Spencer, at Althorpe. Here it is, now in private hands in London, but from it we can see that our Duke had it copied for himself, also in a mottled stone, we are told, but it was differently set, and we have only the cast of it. Theatrical masks were another good subject. 
Here's one of a satyr with only one eye, which was in the market not so long ago, as also was this, a, a comic actor. Modern portraits, too, like Philip II of Spain, even Cromwell, various cardinals, and Mary, Queen of Scots. Finally, what might be regarded as the prize piece, certainly the one most talked about and copied, and yet something of a mystery still. It's a cameo now in Boston, the subject generally called The Marriage of Cupid and Psyche, which, for a start, is almost certainly wrong. I suppose it was made somewhere in the first century AD, not too early, although a case can be made that it is in fact Renaissance work, but I don't want to confuse you. At the centre, we see a chubby little Cupid clutching a dove beside an equally diminutive psyche with the butterfly wings, his love and a personification of the soul, both with veils over their heads. They are led with a knotted cord by a big swaggering Cupid holding a blazing torch, and another Cupid holds over their heads a basket, it's a winnowing fan full of pomegranates, a symbol of fertility, and at the right, another Eros is busy with what has generally been called the marriage bed, but which is in fact simply a stool on which sacred objects, probably a phallus, had been placed and which was about to be unveiled. We know from other ancient scenes that the objects and the basket and the veils belong to an initiation ceremony and not a wedding. So this is a very extraordinary occasion for Cupid and Psyche. The figures are exquisitely carved... They're no more than three-quarters of an inch high, yet the detail even of the hair is lovingly portrayed, as you can see in this sort of um, upside-down view of it, where you can also see at the top, at the bottom here, the artist's signature, Trifon, cut into the stone and not in relief, as we might have expected. Another oddity is the way the figures are presented as in a frieze, probably copying some monumental original, Yet all other cameos of the period showing parts of a frieze enlarge and rearrange the figures so as to fill the whole field. Our cameo can be traced back into the 16th century at least. It had a Renaissance openwork gold mount of a cable and diamonds and in the 18th century was given an added mount with big flat stones inlaid which you see in the electrotype. <coughs> in Boston now it is bare of all of these and the outer, rather showy mount had been shed before it was sold. It was often drawn, and once the piece was in Britain, it attracted a great deal of copying. For example, it appears over the fireplace in the red drawing room at Blenheim, on a royal bed at Kingston Lacey. It was copied by Wedgwood for his famous blue jasper plaques, and so appears on innumerable pieces of furniture in Europe. Wedgwood also made an enlarged jumbo version, which is the one you see here, with more detail in the ground line, a decoration for decoration of furniture, and this was much copied in Germany. One appears over a fireplace at Kedleston Hall, near Derby, Lord Curzon's home. Afterwards, through the 19th century, it and groups of figures from it appeared on innumerable cameos and finger rings, which you can still find on eBay. This is an art whose subject matter has proved a constant inspiration. Wedgwood also employed our Duke's sister, Diana Beauclerc, to design cameos for him. The real interpretation of the scene is difficult enough, but an 18th century cleric declared it the finest allegorical representation of the marriage union I have met with, expressing comfort, modesty, fidelity, with the wings of the eros at the left shriveled up so as to render them utterly unfit for flight, to intimate that love is to abide with them. A finer or more expressive set of emblems has never, I believe, been produced, even by modern refined taste and ingenuity. And lucky he didn't know what the scene was really all about, or what was probably under the cloth on the stool. <laughs> I somehow prefer the caricature version of it, still of the 18th century, by the artist Gilray. His little fat Cupid is Lord Derby, who had just married an actress, as our aristocracy was prone to do, and she is shown as a tall figure beside him, uh, replacing Psyche. 
Cupid behind her is giving her a coronet, not a basket of pomegranates, and he's wearing a red cap and bells, perhaps because of the known Republican sympathies of Lord Derby. This is 1797. The final comment on this strangely unequal partnership is the torch of the Cupid leading the couple. Our Cupid's flame has expired and become no more than a wisp of smoke. When a lovely flame dies, smoke gets in your eyes. <laughs> but apart from such light relief, this is a gruelling subject, and I've acknowledged already the help of others in and out of Oxford and at Blenheim. The study involves a strong memory for hundreds of images, which is getting a bit of a strain for me at least, a lot of research in collections and books and on manuscripts in London and New York and in St. Petersburg, where there are 18th century drawings of gems in British collections, which the artist Lawrence Natter never survived to publish as a Museum Britannicum, having received not a lot of support for the project in this country but we're trying to make it up for him. One might think that the study of the collecting, creating and eventual breakup of such a collection was enough of an adventure for any group of scholars, but it's turned out that study of its dispersal of the folk and places where the gems now reside and speculation about where the majority may still be is no less exciting and rewarding and I devote the rest of my lecture to it. The most that are identified in any one place now are in the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, which used to be called the Walters Art Gallery until they thought the name gallery was rather too commercial. Henry Walters had seen the gems in London and left orders forbidding for many of them, rather underestimating their sale value, but eventually getting 107 of them. They were not, frankly, the best. When he gave his collection to form the gallery that bore his name, the gems were not included, but were kept by his widow, who herself sold them to a dealer, from whom the gallery then had to buy them in 1942. Uh, my favourite among them is the, uh, this blended one with um, uh, Bacchus and Ariadne and the ship, which I show you here in the original, in the original rather than the impression. More interesting are two gems which became Marlborough's again at Blenheim. <coughs> And this takes us into family matters and scandals. The ninth Duke, Sonny, married an American heiress, Consuelo Vanderbilt, as Dukes tended to, or needed to in those days, unless they could afford the extravagance of actresses or chorus girls. But early on, he also became interested in another American heiress, Gladys Deacon, who liked to be called Gladys, not Gladys. She was a beauty who spoiled her beauty by injecting paraffin wax into the bridge of her nose and cheeks, a profoundly unsuccessful early attempt at cosmetic surgery. Uh, here she is in the Baldoni portrait. However, as early as 1911, she wrote to the Duke saying that she was the last of the Marlborough gems. Consuelo eventually dumped the Duke, who proceeded to marry Gladys in 1921. Gladys soon made her mark on Blenheim. It is her blue eyes which stare down at you from the roof of the portico into the palace. And in the gardens, which she attended with some care, the two sphinxes have her head. Things didn't work out. There were doubts about the Duke's divorce from Consuelo. His eyes still wandered. And Gladys slowly lost her wits and ended alone, living in an Oxfordshire village, visited by Hugo Vickers, who wrote a splendid book about her, and she died aged 96 in 1977. After her death, her effects were sold, including two gems, although they were not recognised as original Marlborough gems at the time. One is this splendid cameo, now in the V&A, and the other, another cameo in its mount, showing the head of the goddess Demeter. How Gladys got them, we don't know. I suspect that she bought them, since Sonny Marlborough was mean, and it could well be that she somehow saw her own features in the Demeter, making her truly the last of the Marlborough gems. Others who acquired or came to acquire Marlborough gems, so far as they've been traced, include many famous collectors. 
Ionides, for example, the Evanses, Baron Schroeder, who then sold them, but several were bought back by the family and are still of the collection. Authors, pop stars, fashion designers have owned or own them. One of the latest we have found was sold with the effects of Yves Saint Laurent early last year for €97,000. It's a warrior bust cameo set in emeralds and sapphires. They still appear on the market, seldom identified for what they are. I identified one in a fairly recent Geneva catalogue, and after a gem lecture I gave in New York two years ago, a lady came up and proudly displayed it on her finger. Finally, I can't forbear telling you about the biggest remaining mystery concerning one batch of Marlborough gems, and perhaps one of the largest. It concerns Moshe Oved, owner of Cameo Corner, which used to nestle opposite the British Museum. It was first of all in one Oxford Street, and then it moved up into closer to the British Museum. Uh, Moshe had come as a watchmaker from Poland, dominated by Russia, his name then being Gudecker, which he turned into Edward Good. Uh, much of his story is told by his son, who is a, a very distinguished scholar statistician who had worked at Bletchley on the Enigma project during the war and who died recently in his 90s. In London, uh, Moshe married a woman who had also fled from Russia and he only changed his name from Gudecker after their marriage broke up, uh, before it had been Good's cameo corner, since the sign writer couldn't, didn't understand the name Gudecker. Here is Moshe in a portrait in the Jewish Museum in London, which he helped to found. Moshe's own memoir, published in 1952, reveals that he was offered and bought for £600 300 gems in rings, said to be Marlborough's, and still in one of the famous red Morocco-bound boxes. These boxes had been bought by the dealer Whelan, except for one that Story Maskelyne kept, and it may be that the gems had been Whelan's too, but we can't tell. Moshe was very excited. He doesn't reveal their source, but his descriptions, apart from the box, rings true, and many were certainly Marlborough's. But there were some so-called Poniatowskis as well, so there may have been some 19th century pieces there too. He intended to make a very special display of them, a publication, but the next day an American came in and offered him £800. The American was dressed in a battered black straw hat and dirty clothes. He said he didn't have the money on him, but he'd come back next day. He did, still without the money, but Moshe still let them have them, and he bought other pieces too, and he eventually paid up. However, in Moshe's words, four years later the American came back and said to me, you know, Mr. Good, all the things I brought from you are still lying in the cellar, packed in the boxes, exactly as you sent them to me. I neither wanted them nor have the time to look at them. But if you could be so speculating and daring as to trust me with so much goods without knowing who or what I was, then you deserve all the business you have done. So where are they now? One of the largest batches of Marlborough gems not accounted for. But at last we got, a year or so ago, a clue from an American colleague, Carol Matouche. She had a very similar story, heard in Naples, of how a scruffy-looking American in 1926 bought millions of liras worth of bronzes. The seller queried the cheque, but was told that it was OK. It's of John Ringling, a multimillionaire. Now, Ringling was a circus man. He and his brothers had bought Barnum and Bailey's circus and became millionaires. He founded the Ringling Museum in Sarasota in Florida. He built himself a Venetian palace there. He became a very skillful collector, and it's remarked by his nephew that he tended to disguise his, his skills and knowledge by bucolic behavior, which is exactly what had happened here. There's a visual clue, too. The American kept on visiting Cameo Corner in London, and Moshe had many anecdotes about him. For instance, he fell in love with Sunita Epstein's um, model, 
and uh, wanted to uh, promote her with a, a new special comb that he had invented for, for women, which would pull back the hair and remove all the forehead wrinkles, but Sanitar wasn't impressed. <coughs> he never mentions his name, though, but uh, he boasts of his physique quite often to Moshe, and so Superman was Moshe's name for him. Once he sent Moshe a picture of himself pretending to be a tough cowboy. The face is distorted by his expression, but it is undoubtedly that of John Ringling, to judge from a photo of Ringling of about that date. Compare the two. The, the ear, the eyebrows, the, all, all the details of it fit. But where are the gems? They're not in the Ringling Museum, it seems. He had a habit of putting boxes he had bought away and never opening them again, so there may be hope still. Finally, what may simply be one more chapter in the history of the collection, and depending less on good luck, on our Beasley Archive website, we've put pictures of all the gems so that they can be viewed at a larger scale than was possible in the book, and we've added various relevant catalogues. We had already put on the web pictures of all the gems we couldn't find. This resulted in a German collector recognising one she had bought at Sotheby's a few years back, a fine Renaissance cameo of Venus. While a lady in the south of England, whose grandmother had given her a cameo ring with a dog on it, idly googled cameo dog and came up with our picture of the electrotype, which is this. It's already been on the market for £20,000 and is now it is on the market again for a yet greater sum. This is an unending story of art collecting and profitability and involving some of the more exciting and certainly unusual archaeological research that has ever come our way. Thank you very much. <laughs>